0: Hello, I'm Gayheart Gaines, chairman of GOPAC. Welcome to It's Morning in America Again, the latest in our series of training tapes. I hope you have benefited from the insights of our speakers over the 1995-96 election cycle. In this tape, Speaker of the House, Newt Gingrich, reflects upon the results of the 1996 election. Our tremendous victories of 1994 were not reversed. For the first time in 68 years, a Republican Congress was re-elected. Not since Nicholas Longworth in 1926 and 1928 has a Republican Speaker of the House retained the gavel for more than a single Congress. This is a significant achievement. The speaker also lays out his vision for the tasks ahead for the 105th Congress, for 1998, and beyond. In the speaker's words, quote, each of us in our own way has to be bold if we are to renew the American civilization.
3: The last time a Republican group got together to welcome a reelected Speaker of the House was 1928. I want y'all to think about that for a minute. You are at a moment in history which has not occurred in 68 years. And you are the first group I have talked to since the election. Half of that is an accident of scheduling, and the other half is the other half is pretty good planning by John Shattuck and Gay Gaines. Uh, and it's the combination of those two that came together tonight. It is first of all, I just have to say that because many of you are sort of family here. I have to say, first of all, it is a little weird to have an introduction, which half of which is me on tape. And there's a there's a point here where you get you're sitting down here going, okay, enough of this. I mean, I remember me. There's another part where I was was, was thinking of jumping up and saying, gay, that was 80,000 commercials ago. Do you think I'm crazy? You know, don't encourage them. Uh, You know, I mean, the Democrats have figured it out and let them go sleep for a while. Uh, They had a good two year run at it and they failed. It was wonderful. The the truth is, as I occasionally would try to suggest on various talk shows, being the anti-newt party is a remarkably narrow base in which to run a campaign. Uh, Adding to it a few lies about Medicare doesn't strengthen you very much, and then having the union bosses run ads so you can prove you have no ties to the local community ends the game. And if you think I'm exaggerating, John will tell you, go talk to J.D. Hayworth, who once people figured out what was going on, he gained 14 points in about 10 days. Uh, now, I will tell you it was kind of exciting before they figured out what was going on. Uh, and, and, and I also, I, I, I listened to that quote from two years ago, two and a half years ago. And on one level, when we talked about casualties, just remember, we have very dear friends who lost this year. Really good people. Uh, Congressman Longley, who is a great independent idealist uh, in Maine. Uh, Congressman Torkelson and Blute. Congressman Martini, who is one of the most creative legislators I've worked with. Uh, Congressman Funderburk and Congressman Heineman, who was a, just a great human being down in, in Raleigh and who uh, had really done a lot just to try to help the D.C. Police Department, for example. He's a former uh, chief, assistant chief in the Bronx. Now, Congressman Chrysler, who probably had the most money spent against him of any single member in the entire country, well over $3 million, was poured in to try to defame him and beat him down. Uh, Congressman Hoke and Congressman Crameens. Congressman Flanagan, who occupied the Rostankowski seat, which may well have been one of the hardest seats in America to keep, and he campaigned very honorably. Congressman Baker, who was a wonderful conservative activist, who went on his own and led uh, busloads of volunteers to campaign for Tom Campbell at a time when people would never have believed that Bill Baker, the right-winger, would be going door-to-door with Tom Campbell, the moderate. But he knew in that desperately important special election of December of last year, that it was vital the whole team win, and Bill Baker's a great American. And that particular seat was bought by the Democrat who now owns it, Uh, because without her money personally spent on San Francisco television, she could never have beaten Baker. Andrea Seastrand, who's a wonderfully sincere person in a very, very difficult district, and maybe the hardest single uh, defeat, uh, Randy Tate in Seattle, who's just a great, great American, uh, who had worked very, very hard. Now, we have several others who are in very close races tonight, and I'm not going to count them as casualties at this stage, but it's hard when you think about these people who worked really hard. And when you realize how many of them lost because the Democrats and the unions lied about Medicare, it just infuriates you to take casualties that are not, shouldn't be there and that I think, frankly, are immoral and dishonorable. And these are people who were good, hardworking, sincere people And while we celebrate, we should also remember that they paid for this with their careers and with their losses. And in some cases, I hope, we'll talk them into running again and rejoining us, because I think 1998 is going to be a remarkably good Republican year, and I think we're going to gain seats. Gay and John have turned out to be a great team here at GOPAC. They've worked very, very ably together. I've uh, made various phone calls to training sessions all over the country. I've uh, been out on the road occasionally helping them a little bit, and I know how much work the two of them have done. And in particular, I want to say, uh, in San Diego, uh, their effort reaching out to charter members helped the California Civil Rights Initiative at a key moment in its history. And I think it's fair to say that the money that many of you in this room and your friends around the country gave was vital to what will turn out to be someday an extraordinarily heroic victory for individual human liberty without oppression by the state. And I want to thank all of you for what you did. It was 68 years ago the last time a Republican majority was reelected, The speaker was Nicholas Longworth. He got a building name for him. Just a gentle hint. <laughs> it happened after he was dead, so I'm willing to be I'm willing to be patient, and I hope it'll be a very long time, uh, despite whatever David Bonier's fondest hopes are. Um, let me also say that I really admired Bill Paxson election, the day after the election, because he rode a 1928 car to the press conference announcing our victory, and I thought it was exactly the right touch. Uh, a sense of history and a sense of humor and a sense of being pretty happy. And I also want to say, I regard Bill Paxton as one of the two key people who made this victory possible because as in his role as a Congressional Campaign Committee Chairman, he worked tirelessly for four years and he did an amazing job along with Maria Sino, his executive director, the other person who was indispensable, literally indispensable, both in winning in 94, and then in keeping control in 96, is here tonight, and I hope all of you will say thank you to Joe Gaylord, who made it possible. <laughs> sitting up here at the head table with a great friend of many years, Don Rumsfeld, who was the youngest member of the US House when he visited Emory University as part of a truth squad and I was at that time a senior in college and studied avidly under him and admired his intelligence and his commitment and over the years he rose and took with him a, uh, an assistant named Dick Cheney who ultimately became a member of my freshman class and of course went on to other things. Uh, and uh, in fact left the whip's office and that vacancy made it possible for me to become whip. So in many different ways, Don and I go back for a long time and he taught me many things over the years. But I couldn't help but think because he had served in the minority in the 60s. And he knew from his many personal ties how frustrating and how difficult it was for a Republican party that had come to see itself as a permanent minority. And I guess what I would suggest to all of you, and I think Don has the right perspective as a remarkably successful business manager, secretary of defense, chief of staff to a president, member of Congress, and ambassador to NATO. Uh, he's seen a lot of things. And he's the, the general chairman of the Dole campaign. And he's seen the country from many different angles. I think if I look back, the one mistake I made that in reporting to you in, after we'd won the election in '94 is I had underestimated degree, the degree to which the other side was unhappy with having lost. <laughs> and I say this because I think it's an important thing to think about historically. And it explains a lot of the last two years. I mean, it's, Fox Connor once said to Dwight Eisenhower, always take your job seriously, never yourself. And it's a very useful injunction to remind ourselves, particularly in this city, which has so many pathologies of ego, that it ain't that big a deal. I mean, all these people rush around fighting over corner offices and windows and limousines and who sits where at the table and which table they get to. It ain't that big a deal. But we should have understood that in the natural, legitimate history of things, that if you have been a power structure embedded for 40 years in the House, and if you have been a liberal establishment embedded since 1932, that to actually be taken head-on is likely to make you irked, and then to lose is likely to make you enraged. And your first reaction to being that rage is to be faced with, in a sense, an act of cognitive dissonance—to to be sitting there going, "Okay, I'm not in power now. Now, why am I not in power? I could either not be in power, a because I'm out of touch with the American people, have lost out on what really works, and have been rejected, or b the other side cheated." Now, a whole bunch of people, of whom Bonnier was the most active example, but it's true across the board, in the news media, downtown, in the Clinton administration, a whole bunch of people who said, let's pick B. The other side cheated, we were the other side. Now, I bring this up in part, because this is a go-pective, and I simply want to thank all of you for staying together and contributing and being involved. Think about what weaker and more timid souls would have flinched at, being attacked in the press day after day, being attacked in federal court by the Federal Election Commission? Having 8,000 pages of your documents dumped in the open? I mean, would we love to have seen 8,000 pages of the Clinton-Gore campaign? You betcha. Would we love to have seen 8,000 pages of the DNC? You betcha. Would we love to see 8,000 pages of John Sweeney and the unions? You betcha. None of those were dumped by the FEC, but GOPAC was. All of our planning, all of our documents, and I'll bet you any reporter in this town would have told you, you give me 8,000 pages of GOPAC, they'll get convicted. Well, we court got 8,000 pages of GOPAC. The judge said, what is this case about? And threw it out. Because the FEC couldn't make the case. So in part, what I want to suggest to all of you is that every time you, saw, you see an attack on GOPAC, you ought to just relax and say to yourself, we must really be doing something right. They do. The left does not attack institutions that are unthreatening. The left does not th- attack institutions that are ineffective. You can be in this city passively going to cocktail parties the rest of your life, and people will pat you on the head, and you will be described glowingly in the New York Times as a significant and wise person. And they will just say, now there is a reasonable Republican. And Mitch McConnell's been through it, and he can tell you about it. If you stand up for what you believe in, and it's what America believes in, then the elites will go nuts. Because it's inappropriate. Now, the thing I think that is amazing, and I just want to make this pronouncement tonight, because I think Republicans are confused. And they're confused in part because they don't know exactly whether we should be happy about the election or sad about the election, are we upset about Dole winning, are we happy about a lot and Gainbridge still being in the majority, but what does it all mean? And that's confusing. And that's fair enough. So I want to give you a couple of broad ways of thinking about this tonight. First of all, and I really have to confess, I have taken this from John Shattig, who came over very generously and offered it this evening because he knew I was going to get to speak and he already had his shot. Uh, and, And he wasn't clever enough to think of it earlier today. But he's exactly right. We all ought to quote Ronald Reagan. It is morning in America again. Yes. Now, the Washington press corps is going to say to themselves tomorrow morning, how can Gingrich be standing there and with my good friend Don, who was the chairman of the Dole campaign, is this a disrespectful to Bob Dole and Jack Kemp? Not at all. But let's look let's look at the larger institutional fabric of where we are. And let's start with 4 years ago. And here here are the numbers. Depending on the final recounts and the two specials in uh, the runoffs in Texas. We are between 47 and 50 seats stronger in the House than in 1992. That's a net gain. In fact, if we win the the two specials in Texas, we will probably end up exactly where we were in 1994 at 2.30, and the other six came, remember, from five switches in one special election. So we'd actually be back to where we were in 1994. This would only be thought of as no loss. But in all fairness, it will be a loss of five or six, because we did gain a seat in the special, just as in the next two years we'll gain another five or 10 seats during the course of events, and we'll enter the 1998 campaign, I think probably at almost 240, and then we'll pick up another 20 seats, so we'll be in pretty good shape at the end of 98. Um, The Senate, again, Mitch can tell you that this has really made a big difference, plus 11. We are 11 senators stronger tonight than in 1992. Eight houses of Representatives, 228 more Republicans than in 1992. State Senate, 172 more Republicans than in 1992. Governorships, 13 more Republicans than in 1992. And there's a wonderful analytical piece in the Financial Times this morning in which the English Observer says, If you imagine a president committed to a balanced budget, welfare reform, and a stronger death penalty, would you say conservatism was losing? (laughs) Or would you say that the only way to win a national election in America is to now be conservative? And so I would say, first of all, that we're actually entering 1997 in a remarkably strong position. I would commend to all of you, uh, Grover Norquist's articles, uh, Grover's right over here, and I think talked to you earlier today, uh, head of Americans for tax reform, and one of the great leaders of the whole lower tax uh, movement in this country. Um, But he made the point that in a sense, 1996 was the equivalent in World War II terms of the Battle of the Bulge, and that you had an, an opponent who had launched the last desperate effort all the union money, all the Medicare misinformation, all the efforts, and what are they gonna, th- what are they gonna do for noncore? Because it didn't work. I think that's a very important thing to remember. Joe taught me a paraphrase from Reagan, which was that is a great country filled with good people. And all through September and October when we campaigned around the country, I kept remembering that mantra, because I kept thinking to myself, if this is truly a great country filled with good people, in the end, they won't believe the misinformation. And again, if you talk to the various members who are here tonight, as they thought it through, the American people turned out to be a lot smarter than the pollsters, and as they thought through the issues, they turned out to have a lot more depth. And in the end, they didn't believe it, and in the end, they reelected a Republican Senate and a Republican House, and in the end, we ended up with exactly the same number of governors as we had before this election began. And I think that, that, frankly, while it's discouraging at the presidential level, it's encouraging to know that the only way Bill Clinton could win the presidency was to give up tax increases, give up the liberal welfare state, give up the core language of the left, declare publicly he was not a closet liberal, be indignant at the thought, and announce that he would basically govern on our terms. And I think that that is an enormous step. And when he says, can we find a common ground? My answer is yes. And I think that's how we ought to enter into this. It's very, let me explain why I think this is so important. We cannot be in a permanent campaign. The world looks to us. And I don't have any different feelings that I had a week ago. But I know that for the future of the human race, America has to function. And the founding fathers in their wisdom deliberately designed a system of extraordinary inefficiency. Their core goal was to design a machine so inefficient that no dictator could make it work. And that means that as volunteers, we have a hard time getting it to work. But they would all laugh at our frustration and say to us, yes, frustration is the price of freedom. And so I can tell all of you, and I think this is is one of the most partisan groups I've ever worked with and a group that I cherish. Many of you are part of the extended family that Marianne and I have. And I can tell all of them, it is vital for this country's future that we find some ability to reach beyond our partisanship and to reach beyond our personalities because that is what distinguishes America from other countries. I was, I was struck with it at two levels in sort of avoiding the campaign. You, know, you do get to a point here where you get burned out and you sort of think can I read something that isn't political? In my case, two of the things I read were volume one of Churchill's History of the English-Speaking People and a a novel by Gerald Seymour, who's the finest novelist uh, that I know of on the problems of terrorism and violence around the world. And I was struck in both of them. Churchill describing the long, slow growth of freedom. And it's really vital, the law is for little people. Rich people don't need the law, they have bribery. Rich people don't need the, don't need the police, they have so they have guards. Rich people don't need safe neighborhoods, they can buy estates. But if you are an everyday person anywhere on this planet, you need the law. It is the law which humbles the wealthy. It is the law which humbles the powerful. It is the law, not the Colt 45, it is the law which was the great equalizer. And yet the law in the end is a voluntary binding. It is we, the people, forming a contract. And part of that has to be mythical in the deepest sense of the word. Something we believe in, something we cherish. Secondly, Seymour in particular, I was reading two of his novels, one in Guatemala and the other in Croatia, and his descriptions of the brutality and the violence, the hatred, the willingness of people in the Balkans to kill each other in memory of their grandparents who killed each other, in memory of their grandparents who killed each other, in memory of something which happened in 1400. And think about it. You can migrate to America from any ethnic group on the planet with any tradition of hatred. And within 20 years, your kids can be playing together on a football team or a soccer team or a basketball team, and they can be united in their determination to beat the other team. Because there is something mystical about our capacity to dream about the future more than we have nightmares about the past and it is the core of the american system now i just want to suggest to you that that has to be the spirit with which republicans enter into the next four years we cannot allow ourselves to be mired down as the anti-clinton party subsumed in some sense of anger or rage and it's not that I'm saying, let's give up on the Medicare dis- dishonesty. And it's not that I'm saying, let's not look at the foreign corruption issue. It's not that I'm saying, let's turn our back on things we should know, but let's put them in their proper perspective. The Congress has an obligation to have oversight that's appropriate, but it has an obligation not to allow that oversight to absorb everything else. We as leaders have an obligation to trust but verify, to quote Ronald Reagan, to sit down with Bill Clinton as we will tomorrow morning as President of the United States. And Trent Lott and I representing the Senate and the House will seek to find every possible common ground to work with him for the betterment of America because the entire world is watching to see if we can make this experiment in self-government work. And I think that's what's at the core of this. Now, I think there's a very simple test. And, and I, don't, I don't say this is a test purely for President Clinton or for Newt Gingrich or Trent When, pe- but, but it's something you can watch. and This will be one of the great emerging stories of 1997. When we talk about a center for America, is that center defined by Americans? Or is that center defined by the liberal elites? You see, Usually when you watch television or you read the New York Times or the Washington Post and you hear something about a center, what they're telling you about is their center. Their center is very far to the left. The center of the American people. I asked a reporter the other day, I said, if 90% of the country wants a balanced budget, where's the center? It's not between the 90 and the 10. If 85% of the country is sick of drugs, and I recently had a dear friend whose 19-year-old sister OD'd on a drug and is now in a coma and probably will not ever come back. And it is personal, and I do feel it intensely. And I will say to all of you, I hate those who exploit our children for their own enrichment, and I will do anything to break the back of the drug trade in the next four years. But is the center between those who despise the drug trade and those who would legalize it? Or is the center in the middle of the overwhelming majority who want to save their children? And you can go through item after item. The work ethic versus guaranteed welfare. 93% of the country favored welfare reform. In the New York Times own poll. 88% of those own welfare favored welfare reform. Now where is the center at that point? It is totally committed to welfare reform. So if by center our friends mean the center of the American people, they will find us standing there ready to work. But if by center they mean some mythological liberal fantasy, they will find us totally opposed. It is that simple. we also have to work together for a very practical reason. We are the only country capable of leading the world. There is no substitute, there is no competitor. It is gradually sinking in as the Cold War fades that we have a unique obligation. It's both an external obligation and an internal obligation. It's an obligation to work together, in every way we can, and that again doesn't mean you don't have honest debate, it doesn't mean you don't have honest disagreement, but you try wherever possible to find a way to work together so America deals with the world with a unity and a consistency of purpose. It also means that we have to talk honestly among ourselves. We must reform the UN, but then frankly, we're gonna have to pay for the UN, and that's frankly gonna be a challenge. We can't end up as a country totally isolated around the world because people don't understand our policies and don't understand what we're doing. We have to build a sense of commitment and consistency about where we'll send troops and why we'll send troops. We're very fortunate tonight to have one of the great political theoreticians of this country, and Ken Jowett here, and Ken was commenting to me earlier two great phrases I want you to think about, and I want to sort of steal from him if I can, because I can probably get these in the Nexus fast, and he can. One is the concept of violent weakness. The, what you see in Rwanda, what you see in Croatia and in, uh, all across the Balkans, in Bosnia, in Serbia, what you see in Chechnya is not strength, it's weakness. What you see in East L.A., what you see when you have violence anywhere is normally the intense act of those without power because the strong don't have to be violent and strong systems can use the rule of law. And so we have to be aware of the notion that at the margins across the planet, there is a permanent danger of what he described, I think very, very aptly, as violent weakness. And then he said it's combined with something which is different from the communism, fascism cycles. And that is it's combined in many places with parochial murder, violence committed, by local people for local reasons that make no sense unless you're inside the mindset of that particular group. And whether that violence is black against Korean in Los Angeles, whether that violence is white against black, whether that violence is black against black in Burundi or or Rwanda, whether that violence is white against white in the Balkans, again and again across the planet, you find examples of a level of passion and a level of violence and no positive sense of a better alternative way of organizing life. Now we have, I think, three roles. First, to prove in our own country by reaching out to every American and by truly reaching into the poorest and the most violent of neighborhoods, ending the drug trade, creating hope, and guaranteeing a chance to learn and guaranteeing a chance to improve life that every human being is endowed by their creator and every human being has a better future. Second, Second, by being strong enough economically, strong enough culturally, strong enough diplomatically, and strong enough militarily, that when danger threatens, good wins. It's a very important principle of the world. Phil Graham used to say that he was all for the lion laying down with the lamb, he just preferred we be the lion. I think it's important to think about If we kid ourselves about how dangerous the world can be, then this is the 1920s, and great violence is coming within a generation. If, on the other hand, we are sadly realistic about the need to be the strongest on the planet and willing to bear that burden, then I believe our children and grandchildren will live in relative peace, and their children and grandchildren will live in prosperity and freedom. But we have to be prepared to be the bridge of security across the generations of progress. Finally, I think that we have to be prepared here at home to be the model of that kind of leadership so that across the planet when people see us, and frankly, I think far more than the damage that Hollywood does to America inside America is the damage that Hollywood does to America outside America. If you watch the various violent, nihilistic programs that make no sense, and imagine you don't live here and don't realize they're purely fantasies. We come across as a violent, barbaric, and horrifying society. We have, in a sense, replaced Jimmy Stewart with Freddy Krueger. And it is to the disadvantage of our civilization, both at home and overseas. And Hollywood should not be threatened by government, but they should be morally ashamed of the kind of trash they put across the planet, and the fact that they get rich doing it is no justification for the damage they do to the future of the human community.
4: From
2: BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is
3: going on a road trip. I thought...
2: That's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary, VTW group, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.
3: I feel very fortunate in that I grew up as the son of those who fought in World War II, as my father did, in Korea and Vietnam. Those who laid the base to defeat the Soviet empire I got in politics to help defeat the Soviet empire as much as any single reason. And in the process of the Soviet empire's collapsing, serving in the house with your support and your help, I got to know people of truly remarkable courage. Václav Havel, poet, philosopher, a man who willingly risked prison because he believed in freedom at a time when in his own country, it was remarkably, dangerous to believe in freedom and to say anything about it. Uh, Nelson Mandela, the concept of 26 years in jail and then inviting your jailers to your inaugural to set the record that if you can forgive them, who in your society is going to tell you they have a grievance? And what a wonderfully American comment that was. I had a chance to chat with President Mandela once about progress economically, and I said, have you been looking at Taiwan and Singapore and the Asian Tigers? And he said, oh, we pay them some attention, but he said, frankly, the place we want to study is the United States because we value the freedom of your society more than whatever we see anywhere else on the planet, and we want to learn from you. And it was very humbling to think about what he risked because he believed, a chance to again and again, to be with Lech Valenza who said one afternoon in his speech to the Congress that he was glad he'd had the chance to jump over the fence and back into the shipyard a decade earlier because he was younger and lighter and could do it (laughs) and was not sure that he could have actually met the challenge at this stage of his life. To realize what he had risked going back in to help lead the strike which was the first great signal that the Soviet empire was beginning to crumble. And I say that to all of you because I think it's important to recognize that whether it's a newspaper headline or a story or whether it's 80,000 ads or whatever happens in this system, it is nothing, nothing compared to what our contemporaries have risked around the planet. And all of us should recognize that. No matter how big a check you wrote, no matter how many houses you walked to, no matter how many phone calls you made, no matter how many offices you ran for and lost, nothing any of us does is a tiny drop compared to what people are doing across the planet tonight to be free. And it's important to remember that. And I was forcibly struck with it Wednesday night after we had won and we were beginning to unwind and it was Truly an amazing experience. I mean, the the whole sense, a few of you were down in Atlanta and Gay was there and knows what I'm talking about, and Stanley was there. And This whole sense of, this was the first time in 68 years. And it had been a long, long, long campaign. It started in late 1993, ran all through 94, 95, 96. And the other side was quite sincere in trying to take it back. And you have to give them credit. If you tried to design everything they could do. If you think of anything more, don't mention it. (laughs) It was enough, it was amazing. And so Mary Ann and my older daughter, Kathy, who many of you know, and and a friend of ours, uh, decided to take Wednesday evening off. And we stayed in the hotel where we had the campaign the night before. we watched two movies on television, just sitting chatting, and it happened to be, I thought, a perfect evening in a sense. The first was Tin Cup, which is a very fine light movie. I'm not a golfer, so I'm sure I miss some of the nuances. And I like Kevin Costner a lot as an actor. and It was a great light movie. The second was Courage Under Fire with Denzel Washington and Meg Ryan. Now, many of you may not be movie buffs, so I won't bore you along with this, but it really struck me about something I wanna come right back to what our mission is for the next four years. Ten Cup's a fun move. It's about a golfer who loses his nerve and ends up on a very bad driving range in a small town in West Texas surrounded by armadillos not doing all that well. Falls in love with the girl, decides he'll prove to her he's really worth it and does so by getting to the U.S. Open and almost wins it, except at a moment of mad romantic stubbornness, he has to do something totally stupid and against the odds and fails, but fails gladly. So the message is, even if, as long as you buck the system, even if you lose, if you buck it grandly, you win. Courage Under Fire is about a woman helicopter pilot who dies in combat trying to save other Americans. And I realized, and we watched him in that order. My dad, of course, was a career infantryman for 26 years. And I realized at the end of the second movie, it's it's haunted me for the whole week since. The part of our problem as a society right now is we think that being nobly stupid is good enough. Guy was right out there in the middle of television. He was on a golf course. Wasn't that wonderful? Now we can all forget it and go home. And in fact, I guess what I want to suggest to you without sounding too overly moralistic, is that life is real. The 19-year-old girl I reported to you a while ago is gonna die. She's in a coma. She's been in a coma for three weeks. She's gonna die because some total lowlife put a drug in her drink. And that lowlife bought that drug from some other guy who's making a ton of money off our children. There are kids within a mile of this building tonight, living in lousy quarters paid for by the U.S. taxpayer, surrounded by prostitutes, pimps, and drug dealers, in danger of being shot on the way to a school building that is 80 years old, a building that is administered by a school board that is a disgrace to the process of self-government, surrounded by a city government mired in its own ineptitude, and it is the capital of the most powerful nation in the world, and it is a disgrace that we have not found a better solution, and I am one of the people who's at fault, because I've been speaker for two years, and despite our best efforts, we haven't succeeded. There are kids in Indian reservations in John Shattuck State who do not have the right to pursue happiness they ought to have, and the tribal culture doesn't tolerate even talking about their true pursuit of happiness. And there are other kids in John State who've come across from Mexico who don't really have the right to pursue happiness and we don't know quite what to do with them. And there are folks in my state of Georgia from all sorts of backgrounds and I've worked with Jimmy Carter some on his effort to reform Atlanta and while the Atlanta project isn't all I'd like it to be, at least Jimmy Carter had the guts and the nerve to put his name on it and go and try to help somebody. And I just cite all this to you because America needs to put away Freddy Krueger It needs to put away tin cup. It needs to honor the courage of people such as the army helicopter pilot that Meg Ryan played. And it needs to recognize that each of us in our own little way has to be heroic. We talked a while ago about the California Civil Rights Initiative, and I'll leave you with this example. Ward Connolly is a genuine American hero. Ward Connolly. by his own brass and his own nerve and his own courage and his own stubbornness and his own persistence, he went out and as an African American businessman who just thought it was wrong to have quotas, he went out and he created the California Civil Rights Initiative and despite frustration, after frustration, after frustration, despite vicious attacks from the left,
4: which would have been totally
3: repudiated by the elites had they ever come from the right. Nastiness, not very concealed racism, assaults on Connolly's character and his background, his intelligence, and his decency. He never, ever backed off. Now that's the act of a genuine hero. And I would put Ward Connolly in the same league as Havel, or Dubček, or Mandela, or any other courageous person who, in the end, faced with great risks, says, as Martin Luther did at the Diet of Worms, God rest my soul. Here I stand. I can do no other. That is the core of freedom. And by your willingness to come here tonight, you you represent, once again, your commitment in your own way, with your own background, to be committed to freedom. And my point is this those of us who believe in a decentralized smaller government with less power in washington with lower taxes with clear decisive rules for everyone rules that include the work ethic rules that include the pursuit of happiness rules that pursue that include equal opportunity before the law rules that include do not kill and do not sell drugs all of us who truly believe in those should not flinch from four years of working with this administration because it is the administration the American people chose. And we should be very calm in walking in and saying, to the degree we can find a common ground in the center created by the American people, to the degree we can find a way to do that which is right for America, we will every day try to be helpful. To the degree we can't, we will every day do what we believe in, that we shouldn't flinch, we shouldn't be frightened, We shouldn't back off. We shouldn't be antagonistic. We should calmly preach that this is a great country filled with good people and that from city council and county commission and school board and volunteer association and families and individuals up through state governments to Washington DC at every level, we are going to pursue what has made American civilization great. We are going to renew American civilization and then on that base in the next generation, We are going to lead the entire human race to safety and prosperity and freedom. And that is the mission of the American people. And it is our job to serve that mission and to serve the American people. Thank you, good luck.
4: Thank you to the University of West Georgia, Ingram Library Special Collections, and specifically the Catherine and Jeff Breedlove Political Collection. They provided us with digital copies of the GOPAC tapes. You can learn more about the GOPAC tapes on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Garnsey Sloan. Our producer is Rebecca Howe, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcast and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at gingrich360.com newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich, and this is Newt's World.
1: Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at Toyota.com slash beyond zero.
2: For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early, so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call click clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.